Welcome to the Good Doctrine Podcast, where we believe that good doctrine establishes good living. I'm Sean Pasley. And I'm Josh Howard. We're coming up on, or we're in the midst of, episode 130 of Good Doctrine. Sean, happy 130th. Yes, uh, a monumentous occasion. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, you'll notice that episode 130 is coming to you now with video. Um, which I'm grateful for Sean for hooking that up and having ooh, it available ooh, on YouTube. Ooh. Now, I've always said we should do video. That way you can see our shining faces and Sean making, you know, grimaces whenever I talk um, and shaking his if head. If you do want to see a podcast with video and Josh's face, uh, there is plenty of that on YouTube. Josh, you want to plug your uh, Eschatology Matters? Here? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't plan on it, but no, thanks. Uh, no, yeah, so I do contribute to Eschatology Matters. I refuse to say it's mine. There's a man behind the curtain named Brandon. Yeah, you're just, you're just the face. I'm just one of the faces. So, um, One of the faces, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I get to, now I do get to do interviews, which I really enjoy, and we've got some some big ones coming up, so that'll be really, a, that'll be really fun to watch, but um, yeah. There's some, and and the reason why I wanted to mention it is because one of the or the topic that we're talking about today, uh, I was thinking before we started, um, this is something that you know the average person listening, and I'm I don't know you, average person listening, I don't I don't know you very intimately, but I can, you know, I, I think about myself in my current position, and you know, I drop my kids off at their school, and I come home, and Kendall and I have breakfast, and then I think about what I'm going to eat for lunch for the next three hours, there then you I go. eat lunch. <laughs> I mean, my life isn't that simple, Speaking my but language. usually, yeah, I mean, usually I'm not thinking about theological topics, and I'm not in the world of uh, theological academia, you know, at the moment. And this is, you know, what we're doing here is street-level theology, and and most of the, the individuals, Christian or otherwise, that I interact with um, know less than probably, well— you know, think less about theology than than some of these guys that you've interviewed or have interviews coming up. But if you like listening to this podcast, then there's a lot of good interviews on the Eschatology Matters channel. I saw, I mean, obviously, I saw one. You didn't do it, but with Doug Wilson, and right. um, you just inter- interviewed uh, someone recently who uh, you know maybe has some things to say about. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, uh, the issue of preterism. So uh, yeah. I hate doing interviews. You like doing interviews. You're better at doing interviews, so you can just keep it all over there, and yep. we'll just stick to audio on this one. We did some. We did some interviews. If you if you go way back through the through the 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 archives, we had interviews with like Ben Glad was one of the ones. Doctor Benjamin Glad was one that I really enjoyed doing. We did a couple. We interviewed Michael Heiser, who's now passed away. Um, yes, yeah, I was just, I was just thinking about that. That's our yeah. most still our most popular episode, the one with Mike uh, Michael Heiser. Yeah, so we, I mean, we 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 uh, we dipped our toe in the pond of interviews, but yeah, typically we just chatted away on this on this podcast. But um, but yeah, there's 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 deep waters ahead for where we're where we're swimming. But um, you know, our topic today is has kind of been in the the common parlance, I think. Or at least if you're on Twitter, it's not common. common. Yeah. Well, yeah, not common parlance. The 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 Josh Howard world of parlance for people who use the word parlance, maybe it's common parlance. Thank you. Yes. But for us, us not. Uh, which, by the way, the word parlance comes from the French. So uh, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> it's for people who know the French uh, word I'm gonna, uh, for parlance. I'm going to start throwing uh, in German words randomly. Like my unfuckdung is driving me in this conversation. 
Yes. Yeah, okay. So what what we want to talk about today is the 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 issue, or not the issue of, but the topic of preterism. Yeah. So preterism comes from the Latin term, and it and it really just means uh, the things that have already happened, the the, the past things. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to give a more theological, or if you want to give not a more theological explanation, but like the theological explanation of what preterism is, yeah, could you do that for us? Yeah, I mean, preterism, so like Sean said, it, it, it refers to specifically to prophecies that have already been fulfilled is usually what preterism is, is aiming toward, um, which the term's kind of unfortunate, honestly, because it, it it's just kind of a wonky sounding term. Um, but there is, there's different shades of preterism. As with most things, there's some who call themselves partial preterists, which means Obviously, I mean, they think some prophecies have already been fulfilled. And then there's there's others that we would call full preterists or consistent preterists or even hyper preterists that believe all of the prophecies in Scripture have been fulfilled. Um, that's where you mm-hmm. start to get into rather deep water. And that's where I say within the the circles of people who use the word parlance, it has come into the. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, there's there's been some some public figures and especially one um, in Gary DeMar, who who a lot of people have read and benefited from over the years. Um, he's kind of found himself as a lightning rod in that that conversation of hyper preterism slash full preterism. So um, it's, it's definitely out there. And believe it or not, it's it's making uh, it's making headway into many churches. And that's where uh, typically as a pastor. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not called nor tasked, neither is Sean, to, you know, police the world of of evangelicalism or Protestantism. Like we're not out there, you know, heretic hunting. Uh, but if it's a if it's a common teaching, if there's if there's prominent voices promulgating it and if there's a danger involved, then that that becomes a pastoral concern. And, and we do want to address those things, even if even if most people in my congregation have never heard the word preterism. Um, that doesn't mean it couldn't be a concern. You know, one of those wolves prowling around the the sheepfold, so to speak, that we need to warn against. At least full preterism is what I'm referring to. Um, yeah, and and I know I know Josh, you take a lot of flack from me for because uh, you know you, you say like, oh, this has been you know going around in in these certain circles, or you know people have been talking about this or thinking about this, and it's true. You know, like I say that that most people that I interact with are not thinking about the word preterism, right. but when these things, so people like you and I uh, research these topics, we listen to to, to popular voices in, in theology, and uh, you know, eventually these things will trickle down into uh, local churches, you know, whether that be in France or in Arkansas or, or, or you know, wherever you live. Right. Um, these these this kind of thinking will if someone is consuming this 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 content or these uh this these theological publications that people are putting out you know they might be influenced by topics like uh, or beliefs uh, like full preterism or partial preterism and it will trickle down into their preaching right. now um we you you didn't give a uh, uh, a review on preterism you didn't say you said you know what it might be um but you didn't say is this something that we need to? Well, you did say it's one of the wolves, might be one of the wolves that's prowling around. But is there something that we need to look out for uh, when we talk about the issue of preterism? Yeah, and and the thing with preterism, and and I want to be careful with with my language because um, some preterism, partial preterism, is is a good and healthy thing, and most Christians are partial preterists. Um, in, in what in what sense would would right. the average Christian? And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you one specific example here in just a second. Um, but I would say that number one, most Christians are partial preterists, um, or at least if we're consistent. But then number two, that there is an inherent danger 
and I, I, even a heterodox, that, that is to say a heretical danger in full preterism. So if you were to if you were to read the scripture and say all these things have been fulfilled, in other words, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, um, the final judgment, these things have all in essence been fulfilled in Christ's work and in the temple destruction of 70 AD, um, you're wandering into the you're, you're, you're wandering outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And that's where this becomes a really concerning uh, argument. But as far as like mm-hmm. the partial preterism goes, um, I want to get to Matthew 24, because for me, that's that's one of those areas in which a lot of Christians have encountered the benefits of a partial preterist approach to Scripture. But here, here's an easy example. So when we think of things that have been fulfilled in Scripture, and specifically things that are prophetic or eschatological in nature being fulfilled, that's what we're talking about with preterism. So Joel chapter 2. Um, so in Joel chapter 2, um, this is written, you know, dating Joel is pretty tough, but, you know, somewhere between five, six centuries before the time of Christ, you've got the okay. the writings of Joel the prophet. And Joel has some very, uh, we could say, end timesy type language, right? Like he's, t- mm-hmm. he's talking about the things of the end. He uses words like the day of the Lord and this coming day of judgment. Well, Joel says this in Joel chapter two, verse one, um, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming; it is near. So you read you read a prophecy like that, and you're thinking, okay, so this is this is looking toward in Joel's day again, five to six centuries before Christ. He's looking forward to a day of fulfillment and climactic fulfillment. And then you keep reading on in Joel two twenty eight, and this is where you get to the passage that most of us are more familiar with. He says, "And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh." Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. So you've got this prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament. It's looking forward. It's prophetic, right? It's looking forward to a fulfillment. And then you get into Acts chapter 2, after the ascension of Christ. So Christ has come. He's lived, died, risen from the grave, and ascended to the Father. And now we read in Acts chapter 2, there at that, that, that kind of uh, festival celebration of Pentecost, and we pick up in verse 14, and it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Um, and he gives the best defense for a Christian sermon ever. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. <laughs> it is only the third hour of the day. I'll, I'll I'm going to start every sermon. With I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, this is it never ceases to crack me up that, that he begins this mighty proclamation by, hey, no, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. So he can use yeah. verse 16. But this, speaking of what they're seeing there with the time of Pentecost, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old uh, men shall dream dreams. And, and you know, he continues from there. Um, that's, a, that, that's a small peek into the dynamic we're talking about with preterism. There's something mm. in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, so we look back and benefit from it, but when we read Joel chapter two, we're not reading that primarily with a future fulfillment in mind. We're reading it primarily with a past fulfillment in mind. So we read Joel two, and we say, okay, this is looking forward in history, and it has implications for us now today. But its primary fulfillment was there in Acts chapter two in the day of Pentecost. Now, yeah. now here's here's where it gets hard, and here's where we can talk through this a little bit more. Sean is number one. Sometimes in scripture, things aren't quite that clear, right? That's a really clear yeah, one. Absolutely. Peter literally looks around. He says, I'm going to quote from Joel. 
um, and gives them like a you know a loose quotation of Joel. Well, it's it's actually a pretty tight quotation from Joel. And then he says, "This is being fulfilled in your presence." That's pretty cut and dried. Um, but a lot of places in Scripture aren't that cut and dried. Conversely, or I guess furthermore, um, you also have certain fulfillments in Scripture which are proleptic, or they're kind of looking at a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So if you were to look at some passages in Scripture and say, when were those things fulfilled, you would have to look at a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. One of the easiest ones is the one from that we quote every uh, um, every Christmas from um, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 yeah. talks about the virgin giving birth to a son. And if you read that passage in Isaiah, you know, we quote it every Christmas as well we should because it's talking about Christ. But if you read it there in its context in Isaiah, you realize he's talking about something then too. He's talking about judgment that happened to those kings of those pagan nations then in Isaiah's day. But then we know quite quite clearly from the New Testament, it quotes that passage and says this was actually fulfilled in Christ, him being born of the virgin. So there you see something that, okay, I see it is prophetically fulfilled then, but that wasn't the end of that fulfillment. There's a greater, more grand fulfillment that's coming in Christ. Both of those dynamics are are what makes preterism tough is because preterism is not like a hammer and everything becomes a nail. If it does, it leads to full preterism. If you see preterism and you say, aha, any fulfillment in the Bible, we can really trace to the events specifically in 70 AD and the temple destruction, then everything all of a sudden seems to become that nail that you hit with the hammer. That would lead to error. But what makes it difficult sometimes is, number one, the lack of clarity um, that some passages, you don't have that cl- that level of clarity, right, of, of its fulfillment. Mm. But then number two, also seeing a near and a far, far fulfillment, which scripture quite frequently does that. Something is fulfilled now, and yet it's not yet com- completed or consummated. Yes. And you mentioned 70 AD, uh, which if 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 the listeners don't know, that's an important date that you should probably remember, uh, because I mean it was it, the, the seventy AD is after the the, the writing of Revelation, um, and it's when the uh, uh, t- no, says some. Um, I would not I would not say that, but says some. Yes. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, I was going to say that the 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 full preterist view, the or full preterist understanding of it, which is which is the the written during the time of Nero and not Domitian and all that all right. that good stuff. Um but uh yeah, so some would say that it's written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and that's why Jesus in the Olivet discourse when he says that you know when he's looking at the temple and talking to his, his to his disciples and saying that not one stone will be left on the other stone, he's talking yeah. about l- that in a few years Rome is going to come and wipe out Jerusalem and, and destroy the temple, and all these things in Revelation have been f- fulfilled. And, um, and yeah, we, so the, the, we could touch well, on Matthew twenty four in just a second too. I was just going to put. Yeah, that you in. said you wanted to get there, yeah, but um, but the 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 full preterist idea is that everything that you read in the in the Bible has been all the prophecy and all the 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 foretelling has happened has been fulfilled and. I wanted to ask you, why is it dangerous to believe that um, AD 70 was what Jesus was pointing to when he was talking about the uh, the, the day of the Lord? Or, or, you know, why are these things, why is full preterism—I know, but maybe you can help shed some light on it, because you, you, you do speak so eloquently about these things. Yikes. But— um, no, uh, real, real. Not just trying to butter you up. <laughs> uh, I think I think the way that you put the, these things is really helpful. But why is it important? Because we don't want to just say for someone who 
because someone might be reading Matthew 24 and they might know about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and say, hey, this really sounds like oh, yeah. this is exactly the event. And and just, you know, they don't know the word preterism. They, right. and, but how would it affect the average Christian's belief uh, to to be, be become a full preterist, to believe right. that, uh, to, to maybe come to that conclusion that, that everything that the Bible talks about has already seemed like it's happened. How does that affect like, the average person's spiritual walk or, uh, or just Yeah, life? I mean, and there's, there's like, there's kind of two big questions there that, he, that you asked. Like, number one, how does that affect, how does full preterism or, or can, you know, hyper preterism affect the, the average Christian spiritual walk? But then also thinking toward, um, toward what you were saying as far as like, how does it affect seven, how does 70 AD affect our thinking? In my mind, those are kind mm. of two questions, but um, I would put this one little, little caveat in there just because we kind of had that uh, because I said something about the dating of revelation. Um, you can believe in an early date of revelation, you know, in other words, that revelation was written prior to 70 AD and the temple destruction, or you can take a late date. Um, I'm personally persuaded of a later date somewhere around 88 to 92 AD. Um, that in and of itself is not going to drive you toward or away from preterism necessarily. Um, so typically you'll see that differentiation between amillennial and postmillennial views. But but anyway, I, I just thought I'd throw that in there. You can be a late dater or early dater for Revelation. And we could still be friends and you could still be orthodox, right? Like that that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Um, however, when you come to to the, the, the questions that you just addressed, number one, uh, I think why 70 AD um, is such an important thing for Christians to wrap their head around is that m- most Christians grow up, I-, I think, not really having a conception of what happened in 70 AD. So, so in 70 AD, you had um, Rome surround Jerusalem. Um, this was this was it, it, this was clearly signaled within Scripture that there would be judgment upon apostate Israel for denying and ultimately crucifying the Christ. Um, they had turned away from from the uh, the God of the covenants, and it, because of their sin, uh, God used Rome as kind of that hammer to smite them with. So you have Rome surround them, and, and the the cataclysmic nature. Again, this is why history really, you know, this is why this this part of history is really important. The cataclysmic nature was horrific. Like it wasn't just a, t- a city destroyed and a temple raised, um, you know, raised to the ground. That is, Th- this was horrific bloodshed and just, hor- you know, read Josephus. Josephus is kind of taken to to a little bit of embellishment at times, but still, he gives, you know, Josephus being a non-Christian Jewish historian um, gives an account of that temple destruction. And it's horrific. So I think for a lot of Christians, um, that's a necessary thing to factor in. Because if, if, if we don't have any conception of 70 AD, we're going to miss what a lot of scriptural passages are pointing to. Um, when God talks about vindicating his people and judging the wicked, specifically those who crucified the Christ, that gives you a lot of uh, interpretive help in, in appreciating those passages. It, it also helps you to work, work through some of the issues of um, the nearness of some of those prophecies. That's been one of the big draws of preterism is why is there oftentimes a near language? It talks about this generation or these living will right. not pass away till they see these things. And people get frustrated hearing uh, authors or uh, theologians or even pastors walking in circles around those passages, trying to deny hmm. what seems to be the clearest reading, which is it seems like they're talking to that generation, not another generation, but that particular one. Um, so for a lot of those reasons, 70 AD is, it's not only helpful, but it's also biblically consistent, I think. 
Um, the problem comes in, again, as with many things, is when 70 AD becomes the overriding concept for everything within Scripture. And that's where I think you mm-hmm. get into a lot of a lot of error. It's an error on the one hand to read everything in Scripture as yet future when it comes to those prophetic passages and not factor in the fulfillments that did happen with the temple destruction in 70 AD. It's also the flip side of that coin, another error. Um, to go to where everything in Scripture was referring to 70 A.D. Both of those, I think, are going to lead you into a deficiency when it comes to to interpreting Scripture. Um, but, Sean, you were asking, you know, how does that impact the person? You know, you and I both used to have a professor used to always— um, we didn't have him together, but he would always he would always say, you know, what does this have to do with the, the price of milk and eggs or milk and cheese or mm. something like that? I don't know if you ever yeah. um, remembered that one. But but, yeah, what does this have to do with my life, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon in uh, in South Central Michigan? Well, looking back to what God has fulfilled gives the Christian hope for the future. So when you read, because if you were to think like, well, what does that matter to us if it was fulfilled in 70 AD? You read things in the Old Testament where God made promises and then later fulfilled those promises. And we read those things and it doesn't, it does not not matter. It matters immensely. You read the God of covenant making promises to his people and then fulfilling those promises. And we can now look back and see that and have faith in that God for the here and now. That's immensely encouraging to the Christians. So it doesn't not matter. It doesn't rob them of their, of their hope. Um, however, I would also say that there is a future aspect to our hope. The, the Christian hope is always one that looks toward a consummation and a culmination of all things. And you get that flavor if churches recite the creeds like um, the, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. You get that very clear sense of hope. We're looking forward to a, a day when Christ returns and he sets all things right. That's important for us to keep in a balance. Um, we can look back and appreciate what God has done, but we also look forward with an with an expectation for what God is doing and will do, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so I don't I don't Absolutely. view this as something that's not pastorally important for the Christian. I think this does have immense pastoral impact for the Christian. Um, that's good and helpful to think about. Uh, and I and I ask this next question because I I genuinely want to know. But does does the concept of full preterism uh, have any beliefs or any uh, anything attached to it that would prevent someone from being truly saved if they adhered to if if someone said I am a full preterist and they and they were consistent with you know all the beliefs of full preterism is there a a, a belief or or like I said something within the the concept of full preterism that would prevent them from being truly saved and um uh, truly one to the Lord yeah um so. I'm I'm looking it up right now because I want to make sure to get the questions right. So, so like I said, a lot of the the preterism discussion uh, was sparked by by a guy named Gary Demar. And, and if you if you have not you know followed Gary Demar, many people have benefited from Gary Demar for many years. He's written many good things, but um, there was a concern specifically among his friends um, about the things he was saying seemed like they were trending toward full preterism. And so they asked him to kind of publicly renounce full preterism, which he doesn't claim to be a full preterist to my knowledge. I think he would reject that title, but he was being vague enough in his answers that there was concern. So after many steps and you can, you can debate how that whole process went, but um, after many steps uh, apparently were gone through, they they posed three questions to him and even put a website out there asking these three questions. And the, the three questions are this, do you believe in a future bodily glorious return of Christ? That's question one. Question two, do you believe in a future physical general resurrection of the dead? That's number two. And then number three is, do you believe history will end with the final judgment of all men? 
Okay, so number one, future bodily return of Christ. Number two, future general resurrection of the dead. Number three, uh, history ends with the final judgment of all men, some to glory and some to, to eternal destruction. Um, and, and what's been concerning with Gary DeMar specifically, and again, this isn't a podcast about Gary DeMar in that situation, but, um, he, 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 for, for various reasons, refused to answer those with yes, no's, which is what the, the, the request was. So, um, we'll just set that aside. That's where I think it hits home. Like Sean, you were asking, like, can the Christian be a true Christian within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy and believe in a full preterism? If you can't answer yes to those three questions, the answer is no. Right. And that's that's where the rub. There's other things we could talk about with full preterism. There's some hermeneutical concerns. There's some other concerns that we could we could walk through. But really, this is where the the rubber meets the road as far as calling something a heresy or calling something heterodox outside the orthodox faith. If you can't affirm yeah. that Christ returns bodily in the future, that we are generally resurrected physically in the future, and that history ends with a final judgment of all men, then you've stepped outside of of orthodox Christianity. Um, yes. and, and the reason full preterists will get there is, again, looking back to 70 AD for all three of those questions. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast and this is foreign to you and you're thinking, how on earth could somebody not answer those with a yes? Well, if everything was completed in 70 AD, you could say, well, Christ did return in glory. He returned in 70 AD to judge. And there's a there's a sliver. And with as with most things, there's a sliver of truth to that that we could talk about. But no, not to deny his future bodily glorious return. Um, what uh, the general resurrection of the dead, they would say, no, like the, the, the you know, those who were gods were called to him in 70 AD. And it also the final judgment of all men, uh, men were judged. The temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was raised to the ground. If, if that's where you go with it, that's where the orthodox concern would come in. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that those are the questions posed to him, because uh, if you look on your church website, listener, if you look on your church website right now, even the most vague of you know the what we believe pages right. will have those three statements, because it's really, those are, like you said, considered, this is Christian orthodoxy. Right. Uh, in France, in France, where every evangelical church wants to be as vague and as open theologically as possible, even those three questions appear uh, on you know the the what we believe statements, and right. so um, yeah, it 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 would uh, it's those are exclusionary type questions, and you know if you do not believe in the bodily uh, resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ um, and the the like you said the history ending with the uh, day of judgment, those are I mean that those are that's Christian what do we call it. Christian dogma, yeah, um, yeah. First you know, order. That's the, that's the center. Yeah, that's the center of the the bullseye there. Yeah, and um, and I think I think what's hard for a lot of Christians is because again, if you're wondering like what would be the allure of thinking of those things, because because for many of us, like if, if you were to think of those things, like it kind of makes me shiver a little bit to think of denying those things. Like that seems like a hopeless, very odd view of history, and I mean, it would just change your whole. Like, I like the way Doug Wilson said it. Doug Wilson did like a little response to Gary DeMar. Um, I can't remember what the title of it was, but um, but in there he was he was emphasizing. He said, this isn't just like a, a way of uh, interpreting prophecy. This isn't like an exegetical or hermeneutical concern. This is like literally the whole worldview. The way you see everything changes through mm-hmm. that. Like, th- this is not something minor. And I really agree with him on that point. Um but I think what's what's tempting for a lot of Christians is it's the same way we come to to a lot of doctrines. Like if somebody comes to the doctrines of grace for the first time, 
You know, we talk about cage stage Calvinism and things like that. Somebody comes to the doctrines of grace and they think, oh my word, like my eyes, I, like I see what scripture is consistently talking about with the depravity of man and the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is amazing. But if you take that like a sledgehammer and start swinging wildly, like you're going to cause damage, right? Like it's a beautiful <laughs> yeah. truth, but don't go too far. Don't shove that into places it shouldn't be. Don't, you know, let scripture still speak. That That's what I fear that a lot of us um, have experienced with with preterism, or maybe some are tempted to experience with preterism, is you see something like, and we can get into it in a second, but like Matthew 24 or something like that, where understanding how that is pointing to the temple destruction and a fulfillment that has already come, that God has already shown us um, in his glorious providence, we see those things and there's such beauty in it that we then use that as a hammer and start swinging it at every prophecy. And, and, and then yeah. by the time you're left, you can't answer those three questions we just listed, which is that's what we're trying to avoid with this discussion. Yeah. And you, you know what you call a hammer. It, it it's, seems like we, we sure do love to systematize and to order, uh, you know, our, our theological thinking, which I think is good and, and helpful. Sure. But a lot of times we can start, we can start reaching outside of that, that order right outside of that system and start pulling things in that they're that not really a part of it or, or every, uh, you know, every, every, squirrel we see in the in the trees it becomes a part of that oh i see how this relates to this and that's how yeah. you get you know weird eisegetical articles and um you know whole, yeah, we've dealt with some of those written. recently yeah. <laughs> well yeah so go ahead and and um and talk about matthew 24 and and yeah, specifically I, the temple destruction yeah we can jump into matthew 24 but like another thing and maybe matthew 24 is a good example of this one of the one of the things that i think does make something like like full preterism uh, appealing to people is if we can just be real honest, like Bible prophecy and, and eschatology, it's tough, right? Like mm-hmm. anybody that approaches this and says like, oh, eschatology is super easy and super straightforward is just that that's not quite honest. Like this is really tough stuff. Um, you know, we're preaching through First Thessalonians right now and it never in our church here and it never ceases to amaze me that like it seems like almost every passage it's pulling on, it's like a spider web and the spider, you know, puts its foot down on one piece of the web and that's pulling on all the corners. Like there's so much connected through scripture. So like none of these are really easy uh, discussions. Like this takes hard work and then thinking through how these passages are connected. So um, in all of that, I think we're always tempted when, whenever we find something that seems like a, like a silver key or like, you know, one of those just like, you know, a, a silver bullet, excuse me, not a silver key, like a, a silver bullet or a master key. Whenever we find something that like, ah, oh, this can help me simplify this process. Just a little bit of caution there. Um, script, mm-hmm. no, n- scripture is not easy. It's, it's sufficient and it's perspicuous, but it's, but it's not easy for us. Right. So, um, so, okay. So looking at Matthew 24, so for many people, and and some might disagree with the way I'm going to look at this because I don't think I don't think many people agree completely on Matthew 24, but Matthew 24 has been one of those passages that for a lot of people the de facto view on Matthew 24, which is also called the Olivet Discourse, um, you know it's 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 mirrored in in Mark and in Luke, but when when you read the the uh, Olivet Discourse specifically here in Matthew 24, um, for a lot of people at least at least in recent years they read that as holy future, like something completely in the future from start to finish. This is something talking about the end of days. Um, The preterist approach, or at least the partial preterist approach, is to recognize that some of this chapter, and and how much of it is up for debate, but some of this chapter is talking about the temple destruction in 70 AD, while other parts of it are talking about the second coming. 
and you could probably you could probably push that past Matthew 24 and say Matthew 24 and 25 because there's some partial preterists especially post millennial that may say all of Matthew 24 was completed in 70 AD and then parts of 25 at least were um, pointing to the end of the age but here here's how I come about it and this is just an example once again you don't have to com- agree with me completely on this approach but I'm just trying to give you an example of of partial preterism uh, Matthew 24 starts with Jesus leaving the temple and his disciples come out and they're doing as the disciples often do. They're pointing Jesus to, hey, look at how uh, magnificent this, uh, you know, this this temple is. Look at these rocks. Look what we've piled together. Is this not impressive? Jesus. Jesus answers them in verse two. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus right there in verse two prophesies the destruction of the Jewish temple. Verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So now they're seeking him out after the fact saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Then Jesus begins to answer them. Now here's where preterism comes in. If you take that, that, uh, that saying by Jesus and say, aha, all of this that he's talking about has to do with his second coming. It's all future. Um, Maybe they're going to rebuild a third temple or something like that in Jerusalem. That'll be torn down or something like that. Um, Let's let's talk about that. The beauty of partial preterism is it allows us to interpret this with a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. This is what I mean. When you read that statement, Jesus seems to be, uh, or they seem to be asking Jesus a twofold question. They say, "Tell us, number one, when will these things be?" In other words, you just talked about all these stones of this temple being destroyed, not one of them left unturned. When will these things be? And then they continue. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Question number two. I take this to be a twofold question. Number one, when will the temple be destroyed that you just pointed to? And then number two, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? When are those things going to be? And it seems to me that Jesus then walks through that passage, first answering the first question and then transferring over and answering the second question. I think you can pick up on that transition. Um, the danger, though, with preterism is, again, to make the entirety of that conversation about 70 AD, to say right. just just as I think that future, a, a wholly futurist approach on prophecy oftentimes misses the near fulfillment, the preterist approach misses the future fulfillments by relegating everything to the past. And I think Matthew 24, although it's a difficult chapter, I think it's really helpful in this regard because it shows us how Jesus can talk about something now, the temple destruction in 70 AD, and use that fulfillment to point to a future greater fulfillment. I'm coming back. I'm returning to judge all flesh. And I think mm-hmm. we, we, most of us as Christians understand that, that there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment for many things in Scripture. It's a matter, though, of applying that consistently and from the text in these prophetic passages. Right. And, and it's fascinating, too—I uh, mean, that example was fascinating, but it, it is fascinating, too, how you see the— well, the similarities, but I mean, maybe in thinking, but the, the similarities too in kind of practice with dispensationalism and, and full preterism, where you know we've talked, we've warned before about the dispensational always looking to the times to discern the scriptures for us, always looking to modern events and recent happenings and future events to dis, to interpret the scripture for us. Mm-hmm. Where you know where preterism seems like where it looks at events to interpret the scriptures rather than the scriptures forthtelling and foretelling, you know, for themselves and and being sufficient in that manner. But I mean it's 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 not full preterism and this is what you've arrived we've arrived at is full preterism isn't just 
another way to look at the scripture. It is a damaging way to look at the scripture. Right. Um, because because deny believing that Jesus has already come back, denying the bodily resurrection of the saints, or or saying that that has already happened in the past. Th- these are things that affect our Christian walk now, mm. um, and and they they affect your belief now. It's it's uh, and you know they're, it's damaging doctrines that um, that will change the course of. I mean, change the course of your life, and and you know those who who follow that that way of thinking. But it it is it's fascinating to think about, and it's. Obviously, a much more complicated topic than we can um, fully flesh out in, in just 30, 40 minutes. But um, well, can I, I, point I out appreciate one more thing about preterism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because to me, this is always, and, and I feel like we do this, you know, you mentioned kind of the newspaper eschatology. We don't let the newspaper, or we should not let the newspaper um, determine, you know, biblical interpretation or how we view the flow. Like God says what's actually true, what's truly true to steal from Schaefer. So like we, we listen to God and, and go by that. The, the, the thing with preterism that I often hear with full preterism that I often hear is it's a reaction against the critique of especially um, liberal Protestant theologians of the 20th century. So, mm. so a lot of the pushback within the last century within liberal Protestant circles has been that uh, taking for those Christians who took a completely futurist approach. In other words, they push all prophecy out to the future. The critique of liberal Protestants was what do you do with all these time indicators in scripture when it talks about sure. this generation or this hour or this day especially even with Paul when he talks about we who are alive who are left like there seems to be an expectation of something occurring then so the pushback was you guys uh, n- number 1 they would say you guys aren't taking scripture seriously but then number 2 they'd say well it sounds like Jesus and Paul were really confused again this is the liberal mm. pushback against it i fear that number 1 they've got they've got a halfway decent point but number two, we don't let we don't let um, unbelievers' bad hermeneutics drive our biblical interpretation. Sure. In other words, we don't let the critiques of those who are uh, of liberal theological variety. We don't let that determine it. And what I hear a lot of times from full preterists is, we've got to have an answer for these things because they've asked us why. There's near indicators in Scripture, and if we're going to be taken seriously, if we're not going to let these these liberal Protestants win, we've got to do. I, I would just say, if that's your primary impetus, back off that a little bit. I, 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 I'm, I'm thankful for the zeal to defend the Christian faith, but we don't have to explain uh, if, if, if there's something in Scripture that's a near and a far fulfillment, and an unbeliever or a liberal theologian does not understand that that uh, that interpretation. That's not up for us to defend. We present truth. We don't let them drive the conversation. If that makes sense, you know what I mean. I hear that. Yeah, I absolutely. hear that a lot in this conversation, and I would just say it's a good impetus, but like just tapered maybe a little bit it's interesting yeah that's interesting i haven't i you know i i can't say that i've spoken with anybody personally that is uh, a full preterist mm. um but i but i assume that would be a very interesting conversation to have but you know these things don't these things and these these heresies don't generally we we had a whole like series on heresies they don't generally come out of ill will um, no one is, well, I mean, Satan is, but no one is, no person is wringing their hands together thinking, Ooh, how can I destroy the Christian church from the inside with this weird errant view? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like I was saying before, if someone is reading the scripture and they come across these, like you said, these timed event, you know, these, uh, descriptions of timed events or this generation will not pass away. Like Jesus says, until these things happened, or even, you know, like you said, when Paul says, um, that, uh, we who are left, uh, after these things take place, it's it's you know from from the the intention of understanding, but uh, 
but just with an errant tool, errant, errant understanding of yeah. uh, these these passages. And you know, I would I would blame the need to chronically uh, systematize everything and and lump oh, everything into one big. It. You stop it with your. You just don't like systematic theology, and I still love you. No, so no, no, no. You know? I, I, I like systematic theology. I like biblical theology more, uh, or I can resonate with biblical theology more. If that sounds weird, those are two. Those are two qualifications, or, yep. or two different types of theology. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that sometimes in people's zeal to, to call something by a certain name, they just start reaching out and grabbing whatever's close. But right. uh, anyway. Uh, I'm sure, well, I know for a fact that there's a lot more that we could say about preterism, but uh, if you would like to talk to us more about it, or talk to specifically Dr. Joshua P. Howard about it, then Man. you can email us at gooddoctrinepodcast at gmail.com. I, I, would add, I would add one thing in here, too, because this is this is kind of part and parcel of the conversation, especially with Gary DeMar and with, with a lot of the, the full preterism Twitter war that's currently going on, um, is... We, we we don't we don't practice nuda scriptura is always going to say right so like we yeah. adhere to sola scriptura which means scripture is sufficient and it's our final and ultimate rule for faith and practice but if the church hadn't believed something for two thousand years and there's creeds and confessions that deny that thing we yeah. shouldn't just say well none of that matters it's me and my bible and I'm exegeting now sl- slow your roll <laughs> a little bit like we don't we don't work outside of those things we're just saying scripture is not subservient to those things but that's that's conversation yes. for another day. No, that's good. I want to talk about uh, new scriptura because it, it the 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 catchy catchphrase was it's not it's sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. But right. you've graduated to more Latin, so good for I you. I like new scriptura. It's just so it's provocative. <laughs> yeah, shoot us an email. Good doctrine podcast. Love to hear from you. Um, yeah, we about wrapped up for the day. So then, Sean, I know you've got places I to am. be. Good deal. Well, you know, I've I've really enjoyed this this conversation. Uh, I'd like to continue it. Uh, we will have another interesting podcast in another six months. <laughs> no, we will be we will be more regular than that. So, yeah, uh, hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, we do pray that your good doctrine will continue to establish good living. <laughs>